of our love, our adoration. And we have the privilege of being able to meditate on his word this morning. My name is John Lee. Uh, I'm a member and pastor here at Bethany Baptist Church. And you can go and grab your Bibles. And uh, if you don't have one, there should be a black pew Bible in front of you. And turn it to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be on page 1061. 1061, if this is your first time using a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from verse 1 down to chapter 2, verse 4. So Hebrews 1, 1. I'm going to be reading the chapter 2. Verse 4. And it says this. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, And let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels wince, and his servants a fiery flame. But to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same and your years will never end. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels were legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Let's pray. Lord, your word here tells us that we must pay attention all the more to what we've heard. So we ask God even this morning that, that even though our attention is fickle and our minds are weak and we're prone to drifting away to other thoughts, other troubles, 
other things are designed to distract us from what we've heard. We pray, God, that you would give us a supernatural focus this morning, a supernatural help by your spirit to comprehend your word, to delight in it, and to see your glory through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My senior year of high school, I got an F in computer science. If you're a parent, you might want to plug up your kids' ears. This is not a laudable thing that I'm about to share. I didn't just have an F. I had a 19% in computer science. That is not attempting and failing. That is not attempting to begin with. And the reason why I failed computer science was because I didn't care. I didn't care about computer science. My high school teacher was a jerk. I already had an average GPA in high school of 2.4. And the admissions process for me to get into Bible college was interview-based. Thank you, Jesus. And they already accepted me with my dismal GPA. And so I knew, regardless of what I did in this class, I was still getting in. So I failed. In fact, even my high school teacher offered me a deal. That if I just did one final project, he would give me a D. That is a 40% increase. And I said no. Instead, what I did was I took every class as an opportunity for me to take a nap and make up for the lack of sleep that I lost because I was playing Minecraft. That time was just reallocated uh, to first period. See, because my grades didn't matter, my teacher's authority all but dissipated. And because that authority was gone, my attention left with it. See, authority and attention are interrelated. If there's no reason for us to pay attention, why pay attention at all? If you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to thank you for being here because you're listening about God that you might not even think is real. But for those of us that are Christians, when we gather every Sunday morning, the reason why we're called to pay attention is because the things that we're hearing about and the God that we're hearing from has supreme authority. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is getting at with this passage. What the author of Hebrews is trying to do is elevate our view of who Christ is. And in elevating our view of Christ's authority to remind us to pay attention to what Christ says. To pay attention to what Christ says. So here's the main idea for us this morning. Or the main goal or command. The divine Davidic son reigns. The Davidic divine son reigns. So listen up. The Davidic divine son reigns. So listen up. Two parts. The first part is going to be the Davidic divine son which is going to be uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Second part is going to be chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Listen up. Listen up. So that main goal is going to break up into two parts. First, we're going to look at the Davidic divine son and his reign. The Davidic divine son. Let's look at verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 1. I'll actually read from verse 4. So he, being Jesus became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, and he says, I will be his son, and he, or I will be his father, and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. Worship him. Last time I was up here, I preached on Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the last sermon, we spent time discussing the distinction 
between Jesus, the divine son, and Jesus, the Davidic son. The Bible assumes the hypostatic union or the truth that Jesus is truly God, truly man, without any mixture or division. We confessed this earlier when we recited the Chalcedonian Creed. I had some people ask me after the service why I would bring up such an archaic term like hypostatic union. And the reason is because when I talk about Jesus' humanity and divinity, I don't want to have to read this every single time. The summary of all that is the term hypostatic union. Jesus is truly God and truly man. And the way that the book of Hebrews presents both to be true at the same time, it's kind of the way that the Bible talks about God, Jesus' humanity and divinity, is to show both truths next to each other. John 14, right? The Father and I are one. What's Jesus pointing to there? His divinity or his, or his Davidic messianic sonship? Which one? His divinity, right? The Father and I are one. But then Jesus says, I am going to my Father. Is he talking about his divinity or his humanity? His humanity. That's right. And the author of Hebrews does the same thing in verse 2. He notes that God appoints Jesus heir of all things, which is his humanity. He gets appointed. And that God made the universe through him, which points out Jesus' divinity. God appoints him heir of all things as a Davidic son, and God makes the universe through Jesus as the divine son in the Trinity. Same title, son, two different meanings, Davidic son and divine son. If Jesus is the divine and the Davidic son, then, according to verse 4, that means that Jesus is superior to angels. Superior to angels. That's the author's conclusion. If Jesus is the Davidic Messiah, and if he is truly God, that means that he's greater than angels. And so what the author of Hebrews does in this next section for the rest of the chapter is he takes that idea that he's better than angels and he stretches it out. He goes deeper into that argument and he starts to quote the Old Testament. He does a little perusal of the Old Testament showing all these different areas in which God, the Father, the triune God in the Godhead interacts with Christ according to prophecy. And God recognizes Jesus' unique relationship with the Godhead. Let's, let's look again at verse 5 here. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. Notice that everything that happens within these three verses happens within time, within the stream of time, right? It says, today I have become your father. I will be his father. He will be my son when he brings his firstborn into the world. And the reason why that's so important, time is so important, is because Lots of people will use this exact passage of scripture and fall off the rails. They'll go into some theological gutters. For example, some read these verses and they use them as evidence that Jesus isn't God. Right? If, if Jesus will be his son, then that must mean that there's a point in time where Jesus isn't the son. It would teach that Jesus did not exist before creation, but said Jesus was created, brought into the world, and then at some point gains a promotion to godness. Others will say that this is a sign that God the Father and the Son are talking to one another in eternity past, like somehow before creation, this is a conversation happening between Jesus and his dad. But I want to say that neither of those is what this passage is talking about. It's not talking about Jesus being man and then gaining a promotion to godness. It's also not talking about the Trinity where God the Father is talking to the Son. And here's why. Is God bound by time? Yes or no? No, he's not bound by time. He was, he is, and he is to come. God is eternal. 
which means that he's not bound by time like we are. We are in the stream of time, experiencing things as they happen, right? And there's nothing that we can do to eject ourselves out of its current. And the reason is because we're human. We go through time in a linear fashion. We're all on our little floaties floating down the stream of time. So then, how can God say to the son that he became his father today? Today. Only if God is talking about Jesus, the Davidic son. The Davidic son. Jesus in his humanity. Right? Because Jesus in his humanity is in time. And Jesus, in his humanity, is fulfilling the prophecy of David's son who's going to redeem his people. In fact, I'll I'll jump to one of the quotations here to show what I'm talking about. Go and flip back in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is after David becomes king. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David the king wakes up one day and he is burdened. He realizes that that he himself lives in an ornate palace while God lives in a tent. And so he decides to give God an extreme home makeover. He resolves to build God a house, a temple for him to dwell in. And God responds by retorting to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5. He says this, are you going to build me a house to dwell in? You're going to build me a house. You, David, human being, are going to build me, almighty God, king of kings, lord of lords, a house? You're going to do me a favor. What's God doing there? God sons David. He's putting David in his place. He lets him know who the real boss is. David is not the one doing God a favor. He's not like other gods or idols where they need constant care and maintenance. God doesn't need David. God doesn't need anyone. Instead, God then takes David's drive and turns it into a blessing. He turns it into a blessing. God doesn't just son David by putting him in his place. He sons him by promising David a dynasty, a dynasty, a a lineage. Look at verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 7 or, or verse 11. It says, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here's the quote, verse 14. I will be his father and he will be my son. God is sonning David. He sons David. And he promises David a dynasty, a dynasty, that that a descendant will come who who establishes David's house forever. And that son, that son will build the Lord a house, will build the Lord the house. And God will be his father, and he will be God's son. And who is David's son? Solomon, right? And Solomon fulfills that prophecy, sort of. He he builds God a house, but that house doesn't last forever. He builds a temple, but that temple crumbles down. And he himself isn't faithful to God either. He ends up marrying hundreds of women right, and worships their gods. He commits adultery and idolatry. So Solomon doesn't end up ultimately fulfilling God's promise. The fulfillment of God's promise, according to the Bible, according to Hebrews 1 here, is that this promise of God's son, building him a house, 
wouldn't be completely fulfilled until the true son of David, the true Davidic son, would come, Jesus. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, he sits in heaven at the right hand of God the Father on the throne, and he takes the rightful kingly title of Davidic son. He takes the title. He seizes the crown for his own as the rightful king, the return of the king. And in this way, Jesus becomes God's son. It's not that he wasn't God the son in the Trinity. He is that. He was that. He will always be that. But Jesus in his humanity earns the title of Davidic son in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's what Jesus is doing here. And because he earns this title, because he is God's son, the author of Hebrews' point is that the angels aren't that. They're not royalty. They're not. In fact, the other defense the author gives for Jesus' royalty is because God commands the angels to worship Jesus. If angels are greater than Jesus then it should be the other way around. Jesus should worship angels, but he doesn't. The son receives worship from angels. Rock's taller than me now. When he was smaller, I would wrestle him. And it wasn't because I was strong. It was because I was heavier. <laughs> so I would say, hey, Rock, let's wrestle. And I would just sit on him. And I would make him say things like you're better than me or all sorts of other things. What am I doing with Rock? I'm sunning him, right? I'm, I'm showing him who's boss. And what I'm doing is with my power, I'm exerting authority until he recognizes my greater place. I don't do that anymore because Rock would probably beat me. <laughs> when God is commanding angels to worship the sun, he's revealing that there is a pecking order. That Jesus is greater Jesus can sit on angels, so to speak, with his title, with his throne. Verse 7. And about the angels, he being God says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. Now this verse is not saying that angels are in the wind or angels are in fire. I saw a video recently uh, watching a guy on the internet showing a picture of a cloud in the sky in the shape of an angel. And he claimed that this was proof that angels were real. It made me wonder if you'll ever see a cloud in the sky in the shape of a unicorn. Here's what the verse is actually talking about. Can you, sitting in your seats right now, control the wind. No, we can control the AC, and to be honest, someone should probably turn it on, but you can't control the wind. You can't do that. Can you control fire? Yes, barely with a fireplace or with a grill, but we Californians know that you can't control fire. But who controls the earth, wind, and fire? Do you remember? <laughs> it's God. It's God. In the same way that God controls all things, he controls every gust of wind and flicker of fire. God commands all of creation. And in the same way that he commands the winds, in the same way that he commands every flicker of flame, God commands angels. They listen to him. But he doesn't command the son. The son is on his throne. The son has the authority to command angels to do as he pleases. Verse 8 through 9. But to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. 
This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. Notice in verse 8, God is calling Jesus God. <laughs> right? The other Hebrews is saying that God is talking to God here, to the Son. And God calls Jesus, the Son, God. So who's on the throne? According to verse 8, Jesus. Jesus is on the throne. And whose throne is it? It's God's throne. It's God's throne. And yet, God, in this image of anointing with oil, is anointing the Son, crowning him as king, to be able to take this divine throne. To take this divine throne. For anyone to sit on God's throne would be blasphemous. Would be utterly blasphemous. It would be a claim that we rightly deserve God's place of authority. That would be taking God's place. But here, in God anointing the Son, God anoints God. God anoints God. The triune God anoints the God-man, God the Son incarnate. God took on flesh. Recognizing that Jesus is the Davidic and the divine son at the same time. So when Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne, he is taking as man what he's entitled to as God. What he's entitled to as God. So I'll repeat that. He's taking as man, as the God man, what he's entitled to, what he rightly deserves as God. See, here's, here's why all of this matters. Knowing who Jesus is makes sense of what Jesus does. Knowing who Jesus is makes sense of what Jesus does. Only God can take God's throne. So when Jesus goes to heaven, he takes, as the Davidic son, the throne by divine right. He takes the Davidic throne by divine right. Right. Verse 10. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same, and your years will never end will never end who created the heavens and the earth god did but who created the heavens and the earth according to hebrews 1 verse 10 jesus jesus created the heavens and the earth in the beginning in fact even in this description jesus never changes and who's unchanging god so for both verses 8 through 9 and 10 through 12 are all from psalms that are addressed to God. And yet the author of Hebrews attributes these descriptions, these passages of Old Testament scripture, not to God, the Godhead per se, but to Jesus. Through Jesus, all things are created. And in verse 10 through 12, the author emphasizes the permanence of Jesus' lordship. If Jesus is God, his rule will never end. You see in verse 9 too that it's a good rule. Jesus' rule is good. He loves righteousness, right? He hates lawlessness. He is a good ruler, and that rule never ends. He was there when the earth began. He designed all the heavens with his own hands. And when the heavens and the earth crumble to dust, Jesus will still remain exactly the same. Exactly the same. My favorite poem is Ozymandias by Percy Bershelli. It tells a story of a broken statue of a king in a desert. I want to read it to you. Just picture this image of this broken statue in the desert. 
I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. A little bit out. You can dedicate your entire life towards permanence. You can try to make a lasting impact on the world. You can try to toil and pursue greatness. And in the eyes of the world, you might even succeed in all of those things. And yet our greatest efforts by themselves will be as minimal as a grain of sand in the desert. We're all leveled by the sands of time. We all decay. All of creation is a colossal wreck, except Jesus. Jesus never changes. His rule will never end. He was there in the beginning. He will be there when the heavens and earth will be no more. His rule will never end. And the things on the earth that you see, that you delight in, that you pursue, will only have significance in so much as they point to, glorify, and exalt Christ. Everything else, sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Verse 13. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? While Jesus receives the title of son, the angels receive directions from God. Jesus is king. The angels are his subjects. Jesus is crowned. Angels are commanded are commanded. See, there's a pecking order here. And Jesus is at the top. Now, I don't think many of us are tempted to worship angels in the place of Jesus. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't, we don't commit idolatry like that. None of us have a fascination with angels, even though we do have these four idols on these stained glass windows. But what are other things taking the place of Jesus in your life? What are other things that are taking the place of Jesus in your life? Think about your actions. Think about your desires. If someone were to watch a replay of your life, what would they say rules over you? What threatens to take the place of Jesus on his throne? See, whatever that thing may be, it's an idol. It's an idol. It doesn't matter if it's an angel or anything else under creation. If it takes the place of Jesus, it is a rebellion against the king. And here's the thing. One of the ways that our idolatry can take place in our hearts, the way that it starts to function, is that we begin to view Jesus as a means to our ends. We begin to see Jesus as a means to our ends. Because we want to go to Jesus, ultimately, because we want a better marriage. Or ultimately, because we want money. Or ultimately, because we want the respect of, of others. And when we, whenever we do that, 
Whenever we, we're using Jesus to get to something that we really want, we treat Jesus like he's our subject. What we do is we, we crown our idols and we command our Savior. If you're not a Christian here this morning, what, what has the throne in your heart? Is it career? Family? It might be a good idea during the takeaway time after the sermon to share with someone what you think is most important in your life. See, when, when we're not subject to the king, we're rebels. And verse 13 shows what enemies will ultimately be used for. God's footrest. God's footrest. The image is that all who oppose this king, everyone who rebels against this king, will be put literally under Jesus' feet. That God will defeat all of his enemies. See, God is a mighty God. And we are all under his rule because he is creator and we are his creation. But because of our disobedience, we've chosen to be enemies of God. And all of God's enemies will be put under his feet. But I have good news for you, which is that Jesus was sent by God, his son. He is truly God and truly man. Jesus lived the perfect life that we never could. But instead of hailing him as king, we murdered him like a criminal, like a rebel, like an enemy of a state. And on the cross, God poured out the punishment of sin on his shoulders. Jesus was crushed for your sin, and he died. But three days later, he rose victorious over sin and death. So you, if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you can find forgiveness and everlasting life in him. And that offer of forgiveness exists for you today. You can take this free gift of salvation today, right now. You can turn from your rebellion and bow down to this king today. But that offer won't be there forever. There will be a day when Jesus will return from his throne to judge the living and the dead. That day is coming. This message, this good news for you is urgent. He expects full allegiance or else he will bring full judgment. But Christ doesn't offer you judgment today. He offers you grace. Take it. The marvel of the gospel is that God was willing to die for the sake of pitiful human rebels like us. The mystery of the gospel is that God could take enemies like you and I and turn us into his children, into his friends. Go to this king. Trust him. Talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to any of the members here about what it would look like to follow Jesus. There's nothing else we would rather talk about. Contrasting with this almighty king, the angels aren't just reigning. They serve. They serve. Verse 14. Are they not, being angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Here, the author of Hebrews sums up what angels actually do. They aren't God's son. They aren't on the throne. They aren't eternally ruling. Instead, they are ministering spirits. They are servants sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. You can see examples of angels in scripture with like Genesis 19 with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is about to get judged by God and completely decimated. So, so angels show up to warn Lot and his family and direct them towards safety. And it says here that that's the function of angels. It's what they do, which begs the question for us. 
are angels working in the lives of Christians right now? Right now. Are angels working in the lives of Christians right now? The answer is yes. And no in one particular sense. So I'll parse out. Yes and no. There is a spiritual dimension to life. And angels are at work. They're at work everywhere particularly ministering to those of us who are going to inherit salvation, which means that there are angels working in your life. But you don't see much mentioned regarding angelic revelation or speech in the Bible, in the New Covenant era, um, in the New Testament, after Jesus. You, you see a few examples with the apostles in jail, but by the time you get to the epistles right, and revelation, you don't see much mentioned about angelic activity in a visible appearance, where like the angel Gabriel comes to you and, and tells you something directly from the Lord. If anything, Paul uses an angel of light as an exaggeration in Galatians 1, 36-9. He says, even if I or an angel of light, right, from heaven comes to you and preaches to you a gospel contrary to what I have preached, what you've heard preached, let him be Accursed. So what are you supposed to do? If an angel of light does visibly show up, six wings and all, blonde flowing hair, and tells you a gospel contrary to what you see in this book, you're supposed to curse it. To curse it. Even angels have to submit to this superior revelation that we have. It seems to line up well with what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers and by the prophets at different times in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. We don't need to have angels or give visions or physical appearances or apparate like a cloud in the sky at sunset. Because we have everything that we need in the sun. In the sun. So while you shouldn't expect angels to physically appear, here are some things that, that Herman Bavink lists that angels do indeed do. And he, he cites Bible passages for each one. But, but I won't list those. If you want a link, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. They rejoice over the conversion of a sinner. They watch over believers. They protect the little ones. They are present in the church. They follow it on its journeys through history. Allow themselves to be taught by it and carry believers into Abraham's bosom or his chest. All that to say, our primary focus shouldn't be in what angels do behind the scenes anyway. We shouldn't be trying to decipher moments and figure out whether or not it was angelic activity or not. Everything that these angels do in the first place is in service to their king, Jesus Christ, which leads us to the author of Hebrews' conclusion about all this talk about Davidic sonship, divine sonship, superiority to angels, if Jesus is all of these things, what should we do? What should we do? Point two. Listen up. Listen up. Chapter two, verse one. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels were legally binding and every trans transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to to his will. Because Jesus is the divine and Davidic son, because he's reigning in heaven, because he's superior to angels, we should pay attention to what we have heard. So thank you to everyone who's been tracking with this sermon so far. Why should we pay attention? So that we will not drift away. So we will not drift away. The way that we prevent ourselves from falling, from drifting away, from floating down the stream, from denying the faith, is to pay attention to what the Bible says. 
to pay attention to what the Bible says. In fact, the judgment of ignoring the message of salvation about Jesus will be greater than ignoring the message from angels. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear. What happened to those who ignored the warning of the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah? They died. Right? You think about Lot's wife. She's running away from Sodom and Gomorrah. She turns away. She literally turns to a pillar of salt. If you think that ignoring the warnings of angels in Sodom and Gomorrah would be stupid, how much worse when you know God the Son incarnate, the reigning king, if you know about the judgment to come, why would you neglect such a great salvation? Why would you not run to him and pay attention? And in fact, that salvation promised is verified by those who heard Jesus himself, according to this passage. They, you see it through signs and wonders, various miracles, distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will, people that hung out with Jesus, all of these things to say that the author of Hebrews is pointing out that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, these, these things that we proclaim in God's word, are not myths. They're not hieroglyphics that we decipher to figure out who Jesus was. They were historic events. The author of Hebrews is presenting Jesus and the message of the gospel as verifiably truthful claims. And he warns us that judgment is coming. And for us to be safe, we need to run, not to our own might and will, not to our own ability, but under the blood of Jesus. And the way that we stay in Christ the way we keep our faith strong isn't by living functionally atheistic lives without Jesus' priorities or values, but keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, our King, remembering where our allegiance lies. And the way that we do that, the way that you stay sober, the way that you pay attention and alert is by paying attention to what you hear. Paying attention to what you hear. That's partly why I love that your church shares takeaways after every sermon. When, when you share with your neighbor, what you're doing is you're fortifying the fortress of their soul. You're staying alert together. You're bunkered together. That's what you're doing. Every time that you meet up with someone or on your own and you open God's word, you are splashing cold water on your drowsy, fickle heart. Every instance that you labor, you work hard at meditating hard truths from God's word, grasping archaic terms like hypostatic union or justification or, or the Trinity. You're paying attention to what you've heard. Your attention reveals your determination. Your attitude reveals your sobriety. As a side note, I hope you take that gentle encouragement that PJ gave earlier to heart. Even the way that we come to our service to hear God's word sung, prayed, heard, and preached reflects our attitude to God's word. But that's not the only reason why we pay attention, because we're going to drift away, even though that's primarily what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. We also pay attention because our Savior is amazing. Because our Savior is amazing. The degree of attention that we give reflects the degree of value we're paying attention to. There's a reason why we go to concerts or sports arenas or the theater. We go to witness a spectacle, to witness greatness, whether it's fiction or not. Our hearts are designed to recognize greatness and to delight in it. And friends, what could be of greater worth than our Lord Jesus Christ? Our wildest imaginations couldn't conjure up a king so great and so gracious, so mighty and so merciful, divine royalty that put on the rags of humanity, holy yet suffering the humility of the cross, and from the depths of death itself rising, 
proclaiming victory and ascending to the highest throne. That is our king, the king of kings, worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our love and worthy of our attention. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you, King of kings, Lord of lords. You are worthy of our praise. We pray, God, this week that you would help us to pay attention, to be alert and sober-minded, to see your glory in your word with one another. And as we meditate on your truth, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And take the next few moments to share takeaways with a neighbor. If you're not a Christian or if you're a visitor, you don't feel an obligation to have to share with someone, you can just listen and snoop in on what other people are saying. Let's do that now. Go ahead and switch if you haven't already. Go ahead and grab your hymnals, or sorry, not your hymnals, your bulletins. Keep calling them hymnals. Your bulletins, and turn them to page chapter 12. Page chapter 12, page 12, page 12, in your bulletins, not your hymnals. <laughs> yeah. Let's go, let's go page chapter 12 in your hymnals. <laughs> page 12 in your bulletins. Page 12 in your bulletins. Look at the 